right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to be together around your holy word. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to uh, understand John 19 and following here. Help us to uh, benefit from the reading of your word and discussing it together. And I pray that uh, this would be edifying to all of us and that we would uh, just glory in the fact that uh, we have the great privilege of watching our Savior in action and watching all that he endured and uh, help us to remember it was for us, for our salvation, that God the Son became incarnate and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and descended into Hades and uh, rose from the dead on the third day and ascended back to heavenly glory and uh, is seated at your right hand even now, interceding for us that our faith would not fail. And uh, we pray that we would glory in that and that we would rejoice in what we see here in your holy word that you have given to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, we're on John 19, verse 1. John chapter 19, verse 1. John 19, verse 1. Uh, closing, get, getting near the end of, of John's gospel here. Um, this opening verse is a, is a big one. It's an important verse. So then... Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Has anyone ever studied what a Roman scourging was? Or heard anything about that? How, how horrific that, that was? You all have heard? Yeah, and bone. And like there were ball, metal balls, sharp pieces of metal, pieces of sharp bone. So, and the, the metal balls would, would bruise the skin and the, the pieces of um, metal and steel and uh, bone would would dig in to the flesh of what they they would hit you and then pull it that's what they would do so that itself often killed people and when i was a kid the church i grew up in someone came in and gave a lecture on the brutality of a roman scourging i had nightmares about that for a long time i just thought i just it was just such an awful thing to to think about that happening and yet why was why was that necessary Excuse me? We were wounded, uh, he was wounded for our transgression. That's right. It's, it's, fulfill, it's a fulfillment of prophecy, but that's also, that's what God's justice required. You know, um, if you ever, if you really want to reflect on how serious, how, how big of a deal is our sin against God, you just need to look at this, these chapters of scripture. Think about what he suffered and what he endured. I mean, it's brutal stuff. You know, we used to go to, uh, to the elementary school in Ohio, the kids here, some of them here, had heard about Jesus and things like that. Many of the kids in Ohio at the elementary school we went to there did not know what crucified meant. And so explaining it to them, to little kids that didn't know what it was, and seeing their horror at it, it just kind of hit me. Like, I'm so used to thinking about the cross and Jesus being nailed to wood. And they had all kinds of questions. Like, how, like, so they actually put nails through like little nails I'm like no they're more like probably more like railroad spikes the, between the bones and, and the wrist because like, you couldn't do it here because your hand cannot support you you would fall off of the cross so they would put it between the bones here wow what was that did the one of the rafters things fall off <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Simon Simon just happens to be sitting over there. Simon and Graham just happen to be over there. Yes, it was awful, and you know, Roman crucifixions were were horrendous, horrendous ordeals. They were intended to set an example and to make people fearful of um, ever crossing Rome. Um, and it was crucifixion had been used for a little while, for a couple hundred years before that, and the Romans had really perfected it. Um, but there's a lot of stories of people being crucified. A lot of Christian people were crucified um, as martyrs. They would fill a whole the whole Colosseum with people being crucified, and it was a it was a horrendous thing. But the first thing that he endured there was that scourging, and as Debbie pointed out in Isaiah 53, it says, "By his stripes we are healed." You know, it's talking about the stripes of the scourging is really what that's talking. That's a reference to. That he would, and, and Jesus himself said that after Peter confesses that he's the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Jesus tells them, "I'm going to be handed over to sin- sinners and scourged and crucified." So he told them that was going to happen. And so, it, it's you know the Bible just p- puts things that are incredible as these kind of brilliant little understatements. So they took him and scourged him, but we need to reflect on that and think about how horrendous that was. Uh, what he endured um, for our sins. Like, like Debbie said, the, the old prophecy in Isaiah 53 says, you know, he was wounded for our transgressions. So all of this is the justice of God um, that is due to us, his people, being laid on him. And that's what he was passionate to come do. He was passionate in his love for his people to lay his life down for them so that we would never know what it was like to fall under the justice of God like that. So all of this is because he loves us and he's satisfying divine justice. He's taking that divine justice away so that we don't have to endure it. Okay, verse 2. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe. Isn't that just a, a grotesque image? So he's scourged. What happens if you have a really bad wound and then you put clothes on it. It sticks to it. Yeah. I used to do that, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I would you know, skin your knees, skin whatever, and then you have blue jeans on, and it coagulates to the blue jeans, then you got to take that off. They put this purple robe on him after he was scourged, and they twisted a crown of thorns. Think about the symbolism of the crown of thorns. What was part of God's curse? The thorns and thistles, yeah, in the ground. And so everything about this has a, has a curse-bearing aspect to it. The crown of thorns, you know, the, the, the curse of God against uh, the whole universe, the ground is, is cursed, and it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And I've always thought, what, a, what an incredible moment it must have been the first time Adam ever cut himself on something. Like, ah! Like, and then seeing blood or grabbing a hold of a plant and it's covered with, with thorns. Um, y'all ever done that? Like when I was a kid, that, that happened several times. You go to grab something, you don't realize it's got thorns all over it, and you they jam into your hand, and yeah, everyone's like like nodding, like yeah, we've done that. Uh, there was Paul, you remember this when we were in uh, Mississippi? Uh, Hurricane Katrina had blown through there um, just a couple years before, and there were trees down everywhere. And there was a path that we wanted to go through in the woods, and a bunch of trees had fallen over it, and I could see 
there were thorn bushes woven all the way through these trees. And of course, Paul and Seth wanted to go through all of that to get to the other side. <laughs> and I told them, guys, uh, that's fine. But please watch out for ant piles. There's fire ants everywhere down there. So sure enough, when they jumped off the other side, they both landed in a fire pit, in a fire ant pit. So they're screaming and running around. Paul got it, but Seth had them all over, and I had to very quickly go through all of that stuff to get over. I was just slashed up, and I, I was holding him off the ground with one of his Crocs, just hitting all the <laughs> fire ants on his leg. And I'm like, I told you not to do that. Like, yeah. But yeah, thorns, thorns are a bad thing. You just think thorns are, are not something that was part of the good creation that God made. Okay, it's just, they weren't here. Nothing in that garden could have cut or hurt Adam and Eve until the fall happened. So thorns and thistles and, you know, all the, the bad stuff in, in the world that just wasn't there yet. Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, yes. Before the fall, <laughs> yeah, and then both became toxic, and they started sucking juice out of living stuff like us. Yeah. Okay, uh, so the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. So they're they're mocking him. Also, why why would they do that? Why would they put a, a crown and a robe on him? Yeah. Okay, here, here he is. You know, here's the, the mighty king of the Jews. Of course, they're mocking the, the chief priests and everybody. Like, here, here's your glorious king here. Um, and yet, you see the glory of God displayed in this because in all this shame, uh, the very wisdom of God is being displayed and his power over sin and death and everything else is, is on display here. It's just a, it's a soul-stirring thing to reflect on. Verse 3, Then they said, Hail, king of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. So there you have again, a, he's now been scourged, beat up, a crown of thorns on his head, he's being mocked, he's got a purple robe on, and the guy that's the judge in charge of this whole circus tells the whole crowd he's innocent. Isn't that bizarre to you? You would think, you know, the Romans tend to deprive themselves somewhat on being just, you know, the, no, the noble Romans, you know, we're, we're going to do what's just and fair and everything. Uh, and yet, this is, if you put all the Gospels together, I think he does this five different times, proclaims his innocence, uh, and he ends up nailed to a cross. So, there it is again, I find no fault in him. And then verse 5, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So there, there it is again, another proclamation of innocence. Verse 7, The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Verse 8, therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Why do you think he was afraid? He was in over his head. Yeah, definitely. Caesar is supposed to be considered God, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the reason he was kind of jarred by that comment. Do you guys think maybe 
he could tell there was something really different about Jesus too. <laughs> he pro- I think he, he had never encountered anyone like this before. And the conversation that's recorded next must have just torn him up and just made him really wonder who this really was. Look at verse um, uh, 9. And went again into the praetorium. And what's that? The praetorium? Yeah, that's where he lived. It was the governor's house. He takes him out of the way from the mob to have a private conversation with him in the praetorium. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And what that's also a fulfillment of prophecy, isn't it? His silence, remember, as a, as a sheep is silent before it shears, he did not open his mouth. Verse 10, then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Verse 11, Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So I'm sure Pilate had never heard anyone say anything like that. The only, you have no power over me except what's been granted to you from above. And therefore, the one who delivered me to you, meaning the Pharisees, the chief priests, and all the people that were plotting against him, they had a greater sin even than Pilate. Okay, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Now notice this, notice who says this. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine how hard it was for them to get those words out of their mouth? These are the chief priests of the Jews. What did they think about Caesar and about the Romans? They hated them with a purple passion. But it shows you how deep their hatred for Jesus was. They were willing to say in front of everybody there, we, the the Jews who are constantly rebelling against Rome and constantly trying to throw them out of our land and are constantly causing trouble. We have no king but Caesar. They're pretending loyalty even to their arch enemy uh, because their hatred for Jesus is even greater than their hatred for him. Well, okay. And they thought their Messiah would save them from Caesar and the Romans, right? That's right. That too. Mm-hmm. Yep. They really thought he was going to be a political, a political savior, a political deliverer. But that's a remarkable thing. We have no king but Caesar. Verse 16, then he delivered him to them <clears throat> to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. So he basically throws in the towel and gives up and just says, okay, fine, you guys can have him. And basically he orders him to be crucified. I mean, only Pilate could authorize it. So he authorized them, go ahead and take him and do, do your thing. He just, just must have thought, well, it was collateral damage. I tried to release release him a riot was about to start so oh well so much the worse for for this guy he's just not thinking it it matters that much verse 17 and he 
bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. Okay. Why is that significant? Place of a skull. The head. That's really the Old Testament. The enemy. That's right. What, did, um, what was the initial promise in Genesis 3.15 after the fall of man? God promised, enmity will I put between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. So, ever noticed that the bad guys often have their heads smashed in the Old Testament? Where does Goliath get the stone? Where does um, Abimelech have the millstone hit him in the book of Judges? Okay. It's a, it's a theme that, that comes up like that. But that's kind of biblical theology. That, that theme comes up. I, I think there's, there's a few other times that that happens. I can't recall all of them. I'm sorry? So, yeah, yeah, Jael and the tent peg, yeah. What are some other ones? Some other heads that were smashed that made an impression <laughs> on you. There's other ones. Aren't there a few other ones? How did I forget about Jael and the tent peg? That's like, that's like one of the best ones. But heads being smashed, that, that's kind of the thing. And the, the thing is, you all ever seen a picture of where they're, they're pretty sure that crucifixion happened? It looks like a skull. Have you ever seen it? It literally does. The place that, I mean, they know, they, I think they, they know pretty sure that's where he was crucified, don't they? Have you guys been to Israel? Been there. Yeah. Okay. 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 When you look at it from, from down on the ground, it's kind of raised up. I mean, it looks like a skull. Like the, and it's just a natural rock formation. It's like two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. And that on top of that is, you know, it looks like that. And of course, the cross itself, you would have been crucified while it was laying on the ground, and then it was put into a hole, raised up in the air, and then it would drop down into the hole, and that was to make sure, number one, it didn't fall over, but also just to increase the agony, because you know, that, that downward thrust of your body weight being held by, by those spikes in your feet and your wrists. So it's pretty grotesque stuff, but always remember, you know, that's a, that shows... How, how horrifying our sin is that shows how serious it is in the sight of God. And I'll tell you, that's the one thing that our, our non-believing friends, non-believing family, or non-believing neighbors just don't get how, how big of a deal their sin is in the sight of God. So um, I've told you all the story. I used to teach the catechism and when we were in Ohio, and Paul was, was probably there for this. Um, I asked the kids one time, you know, how was it really a big deal that, you know, all, all Adam did was eat a piece of fruit? He wasn't supposed to, I mean, what, why is that such a big deal? One of the little kids raised their hand and said, but God told him not to. I'm like, exactly. That, that's the thing. If God says don't do this, we are never allowed to do that. And we get so comfortable and so used to certain sins and certain things that we know are wrong. And this was the price for it here. This is what the justice of God requires. Like people think this is just so awful. This is not lenient or harsh. This is justice. This is justice. You know, you think one of God's attributes is his justice. He can't set it aside. And it's not going to be more than that either. But this is what justice required of us was this. Okay. 
Okay, so he's crucified on the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Excuse me. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So think about that just in terms of, of scriptural theology. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. In what sense is that a very fitting title for him there on the cross? He's David's greater son. I'm sorry? David's greater son. Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. He was descended. He was promised a kingdom. That's right. Mm -hmm. He was descended from the tribe of Judah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And what else? Who are the true Jews today? Yes. Yeah. Is anyone here Jewish by ethnicity? And yet in the sight of God, we're the Jews. And Jesus is the king of the Jews, right? We are the Israel of God. We are the children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. We are the true Jews. You know, a Jew is, is not one who is one outwardly, but inwardly, it says <laughs> at the end of Romans 2. Okay, so he is the king of the Jews. It's, it's fitting that it wasn't changed to, he said, I'm the king of the Jews, but that it was just the title, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Okay, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Verse 24. They said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now, do you think those soldiers had any idea they were fulfilling a prophecy there? <laughs> and, and this one, you have to wonder, like when I've mentioned to you all, I, I can't help but remember that debate that John O'Rourke and I did with those, the open theist and that, that other dude on, on YouTube. And thinking, is it possible that they might have decided to go ahead and um, tear it up into pieces? Yeah, no, it's not. But they would have to say, yeah, it's possible, because this is God just giving his best guess. Okay? Remember, one of those guys also said, yeah, it's possible Jesus, that Jesus could have been released and not crucified. But we were assured that, but God would have found a way to get him crucified eventually. I'm just kind of like, wow. Yes, sir? I kind of, um, is there a particular reason, other than showing God's sovereignty, that he in detail, makes so many prophecies in the Old Testament and has them fulfilled in the New. Is there a specific It seems like they're very specific. I wonder if there's a, other than showing God's sovereignty. It's a, that's a good question. I think it's, it's one of the primary reasons is to show the inspiration of Scripture because only God can tell the future. And in fact, when, when God was rebuking the Israelites for having false gods, that's one of the things, one of the challenges he lays down for them is Ask these false deities if they can tell us the future. In Isaiah 41 through 48, is the trial of the false gods. That whole block of chapters there is God just ripping into them for believing in these, these false gods. 
And he gives them that test. Can they tell you the future and see if it comes to pass? Okay? But think about all the details. Like you said, Paul, so many minute details. In fact, I have books in my library that detail more than 300 prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled when Jesus came here. I mean, and they're fulfilled in exacting detail. The fact that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem the week before this on a donkey is prophesied in what book? No. Z- Z- Zechariah. Yeah, one of the Z's. <laughs> Zechariah, the place where he would be born, Bethlehem of all places. You know, think about that. Caesar issues a decree. You have to be. You have to go to the place of your birth to be registered. So that's where Joseph and Mary go. And poor lady, she's. Really pregnant, and they've got a. She's got a ride on a donkey. Imagine how comfortable that was, and going all the way over to, to Bethlehem. That's where he's actually born. That's prophesied in what book? I'm sorry. Yep, Micah. Micah prophesies the, the exact location of his birth. The book of Daniel prophesied. This is one reason that it's not possible that Jesus could have been released in Daniel nine, where, where you have the. There will be 62 weeks and seven weeks and that, that whole prophecy there, the 70 weeks. The 70th week is when Messiah, the prince, will be cut off and killed, it says there. Right in the middle of the week. And if you do the math of when, when Daniel's prophecy was uttered, he had to be crucified right then. It's not possible that he could have been released. Also, um, what, one of Jesus' titles, the, the Lamb of God, the entire sacrificial system, is, is a prophecy of the coming of Christ. It was intended to impress on the people of Israel that they needed a sacrifice, they needed a savior. Okay, I always wondered, like when I was preaching through Luke's gospel, I kept thinking, what did the Pharisees, these guys, they did not think that they were sinners. Remember one of their criticisms of Jesus was what? This man eats with what? Tax collectors and sinners. And they, they did not put themselves in that category. I always wondered, when they celebrated the Feast of Passover, what did they think that that was for? To kill that lamb. Did they not think that they had any sin? I think if they were consistent in thinking that they were without sin, they wouldn't have seen the need to celebrate Passover, right? And yet that's what Jesus fulfills. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. What are some other prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus? There's lots of them. Even the crucifixion before it was even invented. They pierced my hands and my feet. You know what year that was? That's Psalm 22. That's written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And what is it? Eight centuries before crucifixion was invented. And they, I think David probably didn't even know why he wrote that. You know, it actually says that in 1 Peter, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, that even the prophets themselves read their own books, wondering how all this would be fulfilled. Yeah, they didn't fully understand it. But things like that, they pierced my hands and my feet. My heart is like wax. I can count my bones. I mean, Psalm 22 is about the crucifixion in exacting detail. What happened to him? You know, it's an amazing thing. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. What does he say from the cross? I'm thirsty. I thirst. Okay, so it's just thing after thing after thing. Uh, only, only uh, you know, some of them are highlighted in the Gospels, but if you're familiar with, you know, the whole Old Testament and all of the stuff in there, there's many, many more that are... Um, that are fulfilled with his coming. But, but yeah, Paul, I think one of the re, one, that's one of the things that sets the Bible apart from the Quran and from the Book of Mormon and things like that. The, the prophetic uh, utterances that are made hundreds of years, a thousand years, sometimes 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, 
were fulfilled in exacting detail in him. It shows the Bible alone is inspired. So, okay. Good question. Okay, let's look at, um, I, lo- I love the end of verse 24. You see that? They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, <laughs> therefore the soldiers did these things. <laughs> Somebody, yeah. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. So the reason they did it is because God prophesied that it would happen. Now, their motives were all over the place. They're thinking, no, let's, let's not tear it up. Let's, um, let's cast lots so only one of us gets it. It's valuable. Right. Right. So their motives are, are financial gain. You know, that better that, better one of us gets it than we tear it up. Um, but we know the real reason they did it was it was a prophecy. Okay, uh, verse twenty-five. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. Picture that. Do you remember when Jesus was eight days old and they brought him into the temple precincts and uh, he was circumcised? Remember the guy uh, Simeon who saw him. What did Simeon tell Mary? A sword is going to pierce your soul. This child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And he looks at her, and a sword is going to pierce your soul. I really think that's, this is where this happened. Can you imagine being her and standing there and watching this? It's unimaginable. She's just standing there. You know, she gave birth to him, raised him up, knew him his whole life. And his mother's sister married the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Isn't that interesting? Three, three uh, women standing there. And who is Mary Magdalene? What's her background? What's her story? She was a prostitute and what? Yeah. She, people must have thought she was kind of a lost cause, don't you think? Um, demon-possessed prostitute. You realize she was the first one that saw him after he rose from the dead? Verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing by. Who's that? It's the guy that wrote the gospel. Okay. He never refers to, he never uses his name. He's always the disciple that Jesus loved. Is, yeah. <clears throat> and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What's he doing here? Why is he doing this? He's providing for her. And remember, when Jesus comes into the world, he, he enters into that broken covenant of works. He's got to fulfill every one of those commandments. What commandment is he fulfilling here? Honor your father and mother. He's making sure. Isn't that incredible? Even as he's dying, his thoughts are tied to us, to his, his family, his mother, and to saving us. He's got to fulfill all righteousness. And so he's making sure that his mother is going to have someone take care of her. And so this tells us what? what? What else do we know about his family? So someone went on to glory already. Joseph. Joseph's gone because she's got nobody to take care of her. With him gone, um, he's saying, John, you're, you're the man now. Well, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which, you know, is John. You're, you're the one that's going to take care of her. And she goes and, li- and is part of John's family after that. What do you so, think uh, was Mary's uh, understanding of Jesus at this point? <sighs> 
I think Mar the, the Virgin Mary, I think she understood um, a, a lot more because of the, what she says in the Magnificat in, in her song. Remember what she says in that? My soul has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She, she understands that. And she also says, she understands that the child that's, that's in her womb is what God promised. And he's done this in remembrance of his mercy, which he promised to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So I, one of the first sermons I ever preached was on that years ago. And I called it Mary as covenant theologian. Because she understood it. She understood this child that's in my womb is a fulfillment of what God promised Abraham. And that's why we're all believers are called the children of Abraham. She knew there was no human father. Yeah, she knew that. <laughs> she knew this is the son of God. I mean, the angel uh, Gabriel told her that. The Holy Spirit will, will come upon you, and the child that will be born of you will be called holy, you know, the son of God. So she knew, I think she knew a lot more. I think so, yeah, without a doubt. Y yes, ma'am. I think I think James was not a believer yet. As I from what I as I understand it, that's like historically, I don't think James was a believer because remember in John seven, his brother it says his brothers did not yet believe in him, and remember they kept saying, "Well, if you're this, well, go show yourself to the world." And he says, "Well, your time is is all the, is always present, but my hour has not yet come." So I think James became a believer later. Isn't there an instance so. after Jesus? Shows himself back a while that he talks to James. Shows himself to James. I think there's a verse somewhere. His that, brother James. Does I he could appear be totally to James? Wrong. I don't. I'm not having a memory of that. Does Jesus? Is he one of the ones that he appears to after his resurrection? I don't. Maybe that was a commentary I read. I okay. could be wrong. Okay. I don't. <laughs> I don't remember that. But he definitely becomes a believer later, if in fact he's the one who wrote the book of James, which yeah. I think mo most people agree that he is. That it, that is. That's probably a commentary I was reading on James. Yeah. Yep. Now that I think about it, it was Persian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's such an amazing. There, don't you have so many questions that you'd love to ask about Jesus' brothers and sisters? Like, what was it like growing up with a child that was perfect? <laughs> like, your eldest brother never sinned. Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> he must have surely appeared to be the favorite of mom and dad, I'm sure. But, <clears throat> yeah, what, what exactly did they know about him? I, I've always wondered what Mary, like, what she said to people when they asked, like, it was her mentality, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. You know, you'll find out later. The whole world's going to find out later, so. In Acts And his brothers, okay. In Acts 1, so, okay. Yeah, at that point, they would have been part of the band, so, okay. So they weren't, they weren't yet when he's being crucified, but so 40 days is just a little while later, yeah. They must have, after he rose from the dead, maybe he did appear to them, appear to James. Maybe that's why his brothers eventually did, did believe. That's right, yep. Except and Judas. Yeah. 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 That's what's so remarkable about all this is the Christian faith is anchored to real historical events. 
and I've told you all the story about, you all heard of Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf, he was the founder of Harvard Law School. This guy wrote, he was Jewish. He wrote the three-volume work on jurisprudence in America, which is still used to this day as a textbook on how legal evidence works. And he was a mocker. He was an agnostic, and he would make fun of the Christians, but he always he had this motto, never reject something until you've considered the evidence. So one of his Christian students said, have you considered the evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And he was called up short because he hadn't. Simon Greenleaf became a Christian. And he wrote a book. You can read this book. It's a wonderful book. It's called The Testimony of the Evangelist. You know what he said? He said any unbiased jury on this planet would return the verdict that Jesus was alive. You know why he said? Because you cannot establish a motive for them to lie. He said, now, men will often die for what they think is true. I mean, the guys that flew those planes into the World Trade Center Tower, they thought it was true, right? But Greenleaf said, nobody ever dies for what they know is false. And he said, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, every one of these guys knew it. And yet every one of them bore horrendous deaths and not a single one of them ever broke ranks and denied it. Not one. He said, there is no way you can establish a motive for them to lie. They had nothing to gain and everything to lose. And it wasn't that, well, we're pretty sure we're willing to die for what we think is, is true. It's nobody ever gives their life like that for something they know is false. And so that's what he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, every one of those guys knew that he was still dead. And yet they all went out and proclaimed it and they all lost their lives for it. It's a great book. And he just says, any jury in court, if you presented evidence like this, it'd be a unanimous decision every time this is what happened. So the only reason people reject the resurrection of Christ is just bias. They don't want it to be true. In fact, remember when Jesus preached on Mars Hill to the Athenians? What did he tell them? God has set a date when he would judge the world in righteousness, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And it was established. It was something they could argue for and demonstrate because they were eyewitnesses of it. Also think of that. Is there any testimony more powerful than eyewitness testimony in court? If you have eyewitnesses that saw something, if you have two or three that saw it, I mean, you can establish something in court. And here you have the 12, and not only the 12, but what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? How many more witnesses were there? Around 500. And he even, he encourages people, you know, go talk to them. They saw him. Okay? So they weren't saying, well, we're just, we just have a real strong faith that this happened. It's, we are eyewitnesses of this. We saw it. See, and that, that's the thing that makes the Christian faith different from all of man's religions. Anytime you hear anybody, well, you, you know, you have Jesus in the Bible, and then there's Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, and then there's Muhammad in the Quran. You've not studied any of them then. You're not understanding the nature of the claims that we're making. That's right, they're all dead. Yeah. There is no claim that Muhammad conquered death or that any of these people conquered death or that any of them were the incarnate son of God or, or anything like that. Okay, that's why Greenleaf's book is called The Testimony of the Evangelists and just pointing out people do not die for what they know is false. Were there two other books written by lawyers who did the same thing as her last laws? Frank Moore, yeah. Frank Morrison's the other one. And then uh, Lee Strobel. Strobel, yeah, the case for the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Different lawyers decided, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to prove this is a lie. Yeah. 
Yeah, Josh McDowell. That, that, that's another, the other book is by Frank Morrison. Anyone ever read Who Moved the Stone? That's a great book. You know, he points out not only they had no, no motivation to lie, but he also says the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is another huge piece of evidence that he rose from the dead. Because he says if you read the Pauline corpus and all of his letters, this guy is an intellectual giant. And there's no he, he's not a fantasy-prone personality. He's a very sober-minded, very rigorous intellectual. And how do you account for this change in his life? And Morrison says, because he actually did see Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's another huge historical event in world history. Okay, so we put the whole thing in real history. I, I love knowing that my salvation depends not on me, but on what actually happened in history, what Jesus accomplished one afternoon, outside of Jerusalem, on the cross, I wasn't there. I can't mess it up. All I do is re- <laughs> all I do is, is rest on it. That that you know, when, when were you saved? I just think uh, uh, two thousand years ago, outside of Jerusalem, when Jesus was nailed to a cross. That's where I was saved. <laughs> so, and thankfully, I wasn't born yet. So, there's nothing I could possibly have done to mess that up. We're all excited to see your baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's look at just a couple more verses here. Um, Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, excuse me, verse 28. We already read that one. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Okay, there again, Paul, that's from Psalm 22. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. It's this, this thirsting is prophesied. Okay. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. And they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. What's the significance of hyssop? What was that? Exactly. The hyssop plant is what they would dip in the blood of the sacrificial lamb they they put on the doorposts, and that that was the Passover. So that's, did you see all the images coming together here? This is the the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb that's actually taking away the sin of the world. Verse 30, one of the great verses in the whole Bible. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Isn't that a great passage? I love that. It is finished. And uh, I'll close with what I can remember from, there's a, a, Charles Spurgeon had preached on this text a few times that it is finished. Um, but he, he says, if I can recall some of it, he says, Children of God, ye who by faith receive Christ as your all in all, tell it every day of your lives that it is finished. Tell the local priest at the, at the Catholic church who offers a sacrifice, a sacrifice, they say, for the sins of the living and the dead. Cease, poor wretch. It is finished. Tell the Hindu who's torturing himself and throwing himself down. It is finished. And he just goes on and on and on. It is finished. It is finished. Leave it finished. And then he says this great line, God neither asks nor accepts any other sacrifice than what Christ offered on the cross, and it is finished. So that's where our salvation is. That's what we rest on, is that, and that he not only took the curse, the death curse, but he also conquered it by rising from the dead. In fact, one last verse. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And this, this is even more poignant because Paul's about to die when he writes 2 Timothy. Some 
Um, scholars think he may have had a, just a couple weeks left before he was beheaded. Okay, so 2 Timothy is the last thing he wrote. But listen to this passage, verse 8 through um, 12 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is a great little block of text right here. Tells this young pastor, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. Isn't that a great sentence? He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So death is the the result of sin coming into the world. By rising from the dead, Jesus has abolished it. Okay, so at the end of all things, when Christ returns, everyone will rise from the grave, and death will not be part of the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that wonderful? It's just such a wonderful thing. What a great hope, you know, for those that we love who have gone on, who have died. Um, If they died in Christ, we'll see them again, and um, no more effects of the fall. Any thoughts or questions or comments? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that that also is a that's a fulfillment of prophecy there in Psalm twenty two. That's the opening line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not it's not really a question. I think per se, it's more so just a statement of anguish. Like why why have you forsaken me? I mean, you're, you're right. He did know why, but it's more so in those moments. I think in those moments he's actually being accounted with all of our sins, and so there there is a you know, Reformed theologians have described that as the most mysterious verse in the whole Bible. But there is some kind of a fracture that takes place there in that moment. He's, yeah. That, something, yeah. Yeah, how have you forsaken me? Yeah. But why? You know, I just, anyway, I just always wondered why. He. It's like he thought, he thought of that verse. Yeah. And he felt it. He did. Felt it in his soul. And I think also he said that because the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the people that knew the Old Testament law real well, he wanted to direct their minds to that psalm. Because they would have been thinking about the rest of Psalm 22 and every detail of that. In fact, let's look at it. You're right. It is a long answer. Sorry. <laughs> so look at Psalm, Psalm 22. Um, this is a, a passage of scripture. I, I'll tell you, um, there's a number of passages that I'll go to if I'm not doing well, if I feel sad or depressed or whatever. Psalm 22 is one of those. Isaiah 53 is one of them. John 18 through the end of that gospel is one. But Psalm 22 is one of those go-to passages because this is, this is what was going on in the heart of Jesus on the cross. So let's look at it. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. I mean, think about that. It's like, I'm crying out and you don't, you don't hear. It's like he became the object of the father's derision in this moment because he was treated as if he had lived my life as if he'd lived your lives, the lives of his people, all that sin and all the coveting and hatred and, and lust and depravity and envy and everything, all that stuff. He's being treated by his father and being given the, the, the strike of divine justice as if he had done all that stuff. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's, if there's any other way we can do this, let this pass for me. Look at verse three. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Who had just been saying that? I mean, they, those, the chief priests and the scribes, yeah, right there. They were saying that. And, look, and, this is, and this is a thousand years before he was born. That is written here in Psalm 22. Look at verse 9. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You see that? I can count all my bones. You know, when you're dehydrated, the, the shock of dehydration because of the beating that he took, you know, the his skin would have been just clinging to his, you know, and, and, and hanging like that. You would have seen all of his ribs real clearly. I can count all my bones, he says. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. See that? That just happened right there. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. <laughs> Every time I see that verse, I think of um, the sniper in Saving Private Ryan. He quotes that when he's shooting Germans. <laughs> he quotes that verse, be thou not far. He's quoting it in the King James. It gives me the chills, be thou not far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me, he says. <laughs> verse 20, Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. You know who the <coughs> descendants of Jacob are? It's all the elect that he's saving. The descendants of Jacob are the Jews, the Israelites, the, the true Jews, us. And fear him all you offspring of Israel, that's his people, verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. 
All the ends of the world. Here, here's another reason I'm post-millennial. You see it? All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Does that sound like, eh, it's just going to be a few people saved? Look at it. I mean, this is Jesus, what he's thinking on the cross. Verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust even or shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. And then this, these last two verses are just soul-stirring. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Does that remind you of his last words? It's like the opening lines and the last lines. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His final words, it is finished. It is done. And it will be recounted to a people who will yet be born. Who's that talking about? Us. All of y'all? Us. And was it recounted to us who were yet to be born? Yeah. You can't read, read this and like understand history and what Jesus did and who he is and not see that this is God's word. What do the Jewish people do with this? They don't read it. <laughs> Isaiah, you're not allowed to read Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah 53 is like illegal to read in the synagogue. The Christian people, the ones who've been converted in, in, in uh, Israel, mm-hmm. we've seen them wearing t-shirts that have Isaiah 53. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, you can't read Isaiah. I'd go do it. I don't want you guys to never come back again because I talked to you for over an hour. But Isaiah 53, why don't we, next time we'll walk through that passage. Um you can actually, I've heard stories of people reading Isaiah 53 to their Jewish friends and asking them, is this the Old Testament or the New Testament? And all of them will say they think it's the New Testament. Because it's so obvious what it's about. It's about the crucifixion. Is that so? Really? 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 That's why Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel or the fifth evangelist. Because there's so much gospel in, in Isaiah's book. But, okay, any other Brief questions <laughs> or comments? Okay, let's, let's pray so we can look at Noel's baby. Father, thank you so much for this time to be together again. Thank you for each person who's here, and I pray your blessing upon our fellowship, and we're so blessed to have the Bible. What a blessing to have the Bible, to be able to read what happened in history and to just be able to rest and rejoice uh, in the finished work of Christ and Lord, it's, it's stirring to consider what he endured. And we, we see the physical aspect, and that's unbearable even to think about. But there's much more going on there with the, the full force of the wrath of God, the, the righteous justice of your holiness coming against him. And yet, because of his great love for his people, he endured it all so that we could live and die in the joy of that comfort of knowing our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life awaiting us in heaven, and that... Um, Jesus Christ will raise us from the dead at the end of all things and bring us into heaven. Help us to remember that always as we go through the ups and downs of life and the the days of blessing and the days of trial. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all. So John Henry is here.